Brought to you by Leave the Ring Network. All boxing, no filter. Oh! It's another knockdown. He's not getting up, Jim. He get up. He's not getting up, Jim. He's not getting up. No, he's been knocked out. It's over. Mamma mia, he's done it. Anthony Joshua defeats Vladimir Klitschko. AJ does it in style. Beaten down, hopeless, without an answer, and Lomachenko has made Rigondeaux quit. It's Fistionados with Evan Rutkowski. He's a good boy, you know. Hello, Fight Fans. It is Monday, September 9th, and this is the Fistionados podcast on the Leave It in the Ring radio network. I'm your host, Evan Rakowski, former HBO Sports Marketing Executive, giving you my take on what's happening in the sport of boxing on your screen and behind the scenes. The email is fistianatos at yahoo.com. Follow me on Twitter at fistianatospod. We are brought to you by Ring Magazine and ringtv.com. Able to come at you early in the week on Monday because there were no fights of note, and thus I am not waiting for TV ratings Uh on this one. And this is sort of a special edition Mexican Independence Day weekend non-big fight preview, which is why we're doing the Q&A. Q&A this week, uh, and, and then one of the questions, I don't know if I'm going to do this next episode or not, was actually, or I'm maybe one or two of the questions combined, I'm just going to make into its own deep dive. It's, and, I'll, and I'll get to that. But let's start with the review section. So, on Saturday, August 31st, from London on ESPN+, Plus, we had Vasily Lomachenko beating Luke Campbell by a pretty wide unanimous decision for Loma's WBO and WBA titles, and then the vacant WBC title. Also on the card, Alexander Povetkin beat Huey Fury by unanimous decision, and then there's that weird other Charlie Edwards fight result. Um... Let's just talk about this stuff quickly, and then I'm going to do a little bit of a look at Lomachenko and how he's presented to the public, because he really is one of the more polarizing fighters, at least on social media, that I've seen in, in quite, a, quite a bit. So just getting through the fights, Loma wins in pretty dominant fashion. I, Campbell did give him some issues, especially with Campbell's length and just sort of larger frame. Uh, but Loma's glass showed through in the end, and then Povetkin probably lines a bigger fight for himself somewhere in the near future. You know, Huey Fury, I mean, at this point, he is just a terrible TV fighter, and he's lost almost every time he's really stepped up onto that, like, world-class level. So I don't know what's in the future for him. I'll leave the other fights alone. I don't know what happened with that other fight, like... Not even sure I really need to see it again, but let's go back to Lomachenko and sort of how he's being marketed and just presented overall to the general public. I don't want to dive too deep into this one right now because I actually, early on when I was doing this, I did a couple episodes where I was like, well, if I was managing this fighter or if I was guiding this fighter, like this is what I'd want to see happen. And let's, you know, do do deeper looks into that. I'm not going to go that deep here. I just want to... There is, you know, a talking point. I sort of, I'm talking with a couple 
intelligent fans on social media. And I think this just needs to get out there. I think like the narrative out there with Lomachenko, and this is something especially amongst intelligentsia journalists where like watching a Lomachenko fight is like watching the most erudite ballet performance ever. And the, you know, a lot of these people like this is, you hear some of the times the same things where they fawning over Rigo a couple of years ago, Rigondeaux, like ultimately my former employer HBO is literally as guilty as anyone for pushing the narrative with some of these guys, you know, I think it just gets thrown in your face and it's really like that this is the correct opinion and these guys are greatness on your TV, though they aren't commercial stars commensurate with their fighting IQ. Like these guys are the Ivy League of fighters. I think Lomachenko is exhibit A for this kind of thing, although I do think it's other fighters and I think it does Lomachenko specifically a disservice. You know, it creates a backlash and the analogy I was talking, the analogy I was using online with talking with some of these people is like, look, this is what happens. This is basically like, look at a politician like Elizabeth Warren, who, whether you like or don't like her politics, she has some really well thought out policies for the working class that really benefit the working class in America. But she actually doesn't have that much support from the working class. And she's mostly liked by sort of this Ivy League intelligentsia. And it's because her ideas get presented as like, this is the best thing for you. And it might actually be the best thing for people, but no one likes to be told that. It's not a perfect analogy. I mean, you could, you know, it, it's a similar thing. Uh, you know, I, I went into maybe this, you know, there's a Trump effect of it kind of where, you know, you're getting this group of people who don't necessarily benefit from you being elected to vote for you uh, because you're not, telling them what to think. And I don't think this completely explains it with Lomachenko, but I do think it's, you know, it partially explains it. I think also with Lomachenko, what's really cost him, he's not able to articulate his personality in a way where the average boxing fan can understand who he is. And there is a language barrier for that. And actually, I think if you talk to people in the industry, they'll tell you that there's, especially among older journalists, there's a bias in the media against fighters from the former Soviet Union, even though we have seen some fighters overcome that, Triple G, actually, really Triple G and Lomachenko might be the only two that have truly overcome that. Uh, but Loma, more than anything, just seems uncomfortable with putting his personality out there to the general U.S. public, and it really hurts him. And I think it it adds fire to that narrative, you know, uh, that in, in terms of how he's being sold. Like, I, I don't think... If he was in the Ukraine, he would be sold to the public that way. I think it's really, you know, there's another element to this that, that I'll just speak to. I think it's like so, some of it when you read it online, it's like, oh, Lomachenko's white and that's why there's a backup. No, that's really lazy. I think it's more about how he's being presented. Like, we don't really know who Lomachenko is as, the pers as a person. And what we're seeing is this, like, we just know that the Ivy League sommeliers of boxing have told us that the Lomachenko wine gets the best rating out there. It's the most elite wine. And if you can't taste the difference between that and another wine, then you're not a culture enough boxing fan. And I think a lot of boxing fans don't like that because Lomachenko does have a really cool style to watch. I actually think he's really fun to watch. But 
I can see how not everybody would appreciate that style. He doesn't have a truly A-level signature win. And I think with fighters like him who are on the quieter side, you need those opponents to truly break through. He doesn't, he has a list of very good opponents and he is really rarely taken, you know, just a complete layup, even though he's made some of them look like layups, but there aren't many B level or B minus, you know, B minus C plus level fighters that he's fought. Most of who he's thought fought are like B plus level fighters. He just doesn't have that other A level fighter on his resume. And I actually think in this weight class, if he stays here and doesn't move down, you know, he set himself up to the point where he might have those truly legacy defining fights. I mean, Tank Davis, Devin Haney could be a mandatory very soon for him. You know, I don't think Mikey Garcia would make a lot of sense right now, but Mikey Garcia could be a future fight for him. He is older. I, I really hope he gets those fights. You know, I think the next two years for him are going to be really important in terms of how his legacy goes. Um, if he goes back down to 130, I think it's just going to be more of the same. I think it's going to be more of him destroying competition that's not nearly as good as him and leaving that question open of like how truly great is he you know we we now see opponents for him that can define that and so I hope those fights can get made it'd be a real shame if they don't get made uh so I think with him my overall point is he is one of these pound-for-pound pound fighters. I've sort of given my opinion on on pound-for-pound pound fighters. I think it's really, like, who cares? You know, I mean, basically, and I'll get to this later. I'll sell it. When I had my job at HBO, I would sell anything as pound-for-pound pound if I could. It just makes it so easy to the, you know, to, to a sort of casual fan. Um, he is one of the best fighters out there. There's no question he's one of the best four or five fighters alive right now. The question is, how is he going to define his career, and, and can he get those fights that are truly going to define his career? And what can he do? You know, I, I mean, a backlash on social media isn't that important, but I do think it's it's crept beyond that. I mean, there is a reason why he only fights, you know, he fights some of these foreign fights, or he fights on ESPN Plus. Like, there's a reason he can't headline a pay per view right now, and it's not because of talent, because he has the talent. Um, but he's not a big enough star, and some of it is, I think it's how he's just being presented to the public. Let's move on. Also, on Saturday, August 31st, on Fox from Minneapolis, we had a PBC card featuring Arizondi Laro, and he wins by KO2 over Ramon Alvarez for a vacant bullshit WBA interim junior middleweight title. Sebastian Fundoro had a draw against Jamonte Clark on this. And just remember, this was supposed to be the Caleb Truax-Peter Quillen rematch that fell out due to injury. The show averages 1.093 million viewers, peaking at just under 1.5 million viewers. I think there's a few different ways to look at this TV rating. You can definitely cut Fox and PBC a little bit of slack here because there was heavy competition on the night, especially from ABC's College Football, which did really strong numbers. It <laughs> excuse me, in men 18 to 49. He's doing like a 14 share for that, from men 18 to 49, which is really PBC's bread and butter audience. So they were basically all watching ABC's college football. I mean, that did like, I think over 6 million total viewers everywhere. The, you know, PBC also had a main event fallout on the card. You cut them a little bit of slack for that, even though the main event for this 
like Caleb Truex, Peter Quillen. I mean, not not even really a main event for Fox. Like that that was a good fight, or the short version we saw of it early on was pretty good. I think it'd be a good matchup for me. That should be like a Fox undercard or something like that, or an FS1 main event. Um, all given all those factors, this is, in my opinion, this is still a really bad look for Fox and PVC. Those mitigating factors make it something that's not a total disaster. So the context here, let's first start off that this might have been the first PBC on Fox fight card to have literally any kind of a lead-in at all. The Stanford-Northwestern game was on Fox in the late afternoon, East Coast window of time, and it pulled in over 2 million viewers. So PBC Boxing, let's just say they lost about 50% of that audience. And we'll come back to that in a second, because losing 50% in, in a lot of instances isn't a total disaster. But the overall numbers... <clears throat> PBC finishes last among networks in total viewers, and it's not even close. It's like every single show except a rerun of America's Got Talent that was on NBC pulled in over 2 million viewers, and obviously PBC barely got half that. So literally it's like they averaged just under 1.1. I think one show that, you know, the, the rerun of America's Got Talent averaged 1.7 million Everything else is over two million in terms of an average. That's just just god awful. I mean, the good news is that in adults eighteen to forty nine, PBC boxing gets a zero point three, which is still bad. It's just about as bad as everything else on TV that wasn't college football. So if you just look at that, which is you know, which for advertisers is the, the main thing they care about, then. Okay, well, it's not a complete disaster. I mean, you're still basically tying a bunch of reruns uh, opposite college football. You know, that's the other thing. Like the the other shows we're talking like Dateline reruns on NBC, Forty Eight Hours on CBS. Like these are shows just made for old people. So, you know, not not the best look on that stuff. So then let's go back to losing your audience. So losing 50% of your audience, if you were coming on after one of those college football games that had a ton of viewers, that actually wouldn't be bad at all. Like if the, if if it was the ABC North, you know, the ABC game, not the Fox Northwestern Stanford game, losing 50% of viewers when there's 6 million viewers, that's actually pretty good. Like you're like, all right, that's not bad at all. But the Fox's game, it wasn't highly viewed and it was like, You, you, you're you're just sitting there like it's I guess in some ways it's a mitigating factor because you're losing 50% of it but you had a lead-in for the first time but it really wasn't that great of a lead-in to begin with but at the end of the day it's just like okay those demos for the football game they're better and and Fox was giving you a lead lead in and it's coming into primetime like primetime is really when you should be increasing your audience your TV viewership even coming off of like 2 million viewers i just go back at it and i'm like god this is a missed opportunity like yes i understand that with college football you know some people are just going to change the channel when the Stanford game is over and they're going to turn it on you know whatever game was on ABC i think it was like Oregon or something like that I understand that. But statistically, not everybody does that. That's adding in a rationale for something that doesn't really exist. It's kind of like a false 
explanation uh, for what's happening. I think it's just a big missed opportunity because if they would have come with a really strong card here, and let's be real, Caleb Truex versus Peter Quillen in terms of a TV audience where you already have a lead-in isn't a really strong card in, you know, in terms of public knowledge. Like, obviously, had they thrown one of those early cards on where you had Keith Thurman in a comeback fight, you know, you had the, uh, all, all those good 154-pounders in December of last year, you know, including Charlo's. God, you could probably build on that two million lead in. You, you could probably finish second in total ratings for the night, and instead you finish dead last. And you finish dead last. Yeah, there's great competition from college football, but like everybody else was just totally waving the white flag and putting on reruns, and you still finish dead last. So I look at that as like not great at all. Now, as I said last episode, I think Fox is very pleased with what they're getting, mostly because they're getting it very cheap and they're getting it where not even just very cheap it's going to be very cheap and then further reduced by the success they're having on pay-per-view i would look at these things this might be the only time all year maybe there's another show in december but this is probably the only time all year that fox is going to give you a college football lead-in and you didn't really do much with it for whatever that's worth you can promote your product on Fox really well, and they've done a great job with that. But lead-ins do matter. And so, okay, enough on that. Let's go to the deep dive. It is a series of Q, you know, Q&A. I actually love doing these. I get some great questions and some stuff that I wouldn't even think to ask, some stuff that I wouldn't, I would never know that people care about. And then a lot of I think I think last time I did it too. I got a question where I just I did a whole other deep dive episode on just that question. You get some really good ones, um, and <clears throat> some people I got a lot of the same questions. I'll, I'll mention um, I'll mention more people. Well, I've mentioned one person, but I'll mention the questions where I basically got asked a version of the same question. Like you know, some of them like you know, like over ten times uh, from from different people. So let's start out. Boxing Ain't Easy asks, what is considered success for all platforms? Showtime's got, what, three more years of their contract to PBC. Will they do business with other promoters after given PBC has deals with Fox? Well, so Boxing Ain't Easy. Showtime has two more years left on their deal with PBC, and I suspect they will at least attempt to do business with other promoters or content providers since PBC isn't technically a promoter. But for more on that, really listen to my last podcast um, which was an episode on Showtime. Uh, the one thing I will say, I've actually, I, I, I have now, even though I had heard previously Fox was likely going to get the Wilder Ortiz pay-per-view, I think it, this could end up being a win for Showtime. I have heard now that Showtime may be the favorite to land that one. So we'll see how that works. Um, and look, as far as success for all of the platforms, it's all different. And I think that's what makes this boxing world so interesting for DAZN, it's building and maintaining a subscriber base. For Fox, it's selling ads against the fights on regular TV and then distributing uh, mass amounts of pay-per-views or just selling as many pay-per-views as possible for the real big fights. For ESPN, it's selling ads against the fights on TV and then building and maintaining a subscriber base on ESPN+. And then for Showtime, it's maintaining that subscriber base and I suspect winning awards like sports Emmys for shoulder programming, that type of stuff as well. Okay. Troy W. asks, today's pay-per-view model. 
I know you've talked about this many times, but I just don't get how fans will still pay $70 for one fight versus $70 for several months of subscriptions. I just don't get it. Anyways, if Canelo was still doing pay-per-views, do you think he would have lost out on the September date? So, Troy, let's unpack this thing one question at a time. As a fan, like as a pure fan, I don't really get it either. Like, I think if you look at trends, we have yet to see a breakout pay-per-view in that 800000 to a million range. So I think the subscription model is actually working to an extent, but it's also not working as well as everybody predicted it would work, or maybe not everybody, but it's not working as well as the people who financially modeled out the zone and ESPN Plus uh, probably were hoping it would work. I found it fascinating just to report on. I actually think the subscription stuff is great deal, and I think it, you know, it, it provides a lot of value, but I'm a hardcore fan, and I think they're meant to do that for hardcore fans. Um, you know, like I said, DAZN, not huge numbers yet, and honestly, if we're being really real about DAZN, it didn't d- provide a ton of value until about April of this year in terms of providing value outside of just, hey, you don't have to pay for a Canelo fight, but ESPN Plus is own. They're clearly banking on it. I went it over over it last time with ESPN Plus with Top Rank, which I think was an episode or two, maybe two episodes ago. These are top level trends, though. Like I'm a hardcore. I still buy the pay per views. I don't dispute it at all the pay per view. In fact, I've said from the beginning, DAZN probably shouldn't have marketed their service as the end of pay per view. I think there's always going to be a pay per view market. I appreciate that there's a pay per view market. I actually like it in terms of how fighter-friendly it is for the big fights. All right, so anyways, on to the next question, which I actually think is a really astute question. If Canelo was still doing pay-per-views, I actually think there's almost no chance he would have lost out on the September date. And I think a lot of this has to do with the financial arrangement here between Golden Boy and DAZN, where Canelo realized Golden Boy was essentially getting a lot of money because he was in Golden Boy's stable. And he really seemed comfortable with the old system where Golden Boy went fight by fight with either HBO or Showtime. And then Canelo made a ton of money on the pay-per-view. So weirdly enough, I actually don't think there would even be these major issues between Canelo and Golden Boy. And I think thus he would have kept the September and May dates. Like that's what he would have, you know, this this major September date he wouldn't have fallen out on. Uh, and so then let's move on to a question, I, and, and that's touching on this issue, but let's move on to this other question. I'll give Danny Wilson credit just because I think he asked it first. What do you think happens with Canelo, Golden Boy, DAZN? Is Canelo contracted to Golden Boy and or DAZN? How easy is it to break that contract? So I probably got at least 10 different ways of asking this question, and it is a great question. It's obviously related to Troy's question. So I think what will end up happening here is – there will be a middle ground reached by all parties. And if they are really smart, especially DAZN, like there will be a new communication system set up so nothing like this ever happens again. Usually how these things are set up is like Canelo has a contract with Golden Boy where Golden Boy promotes either a set number of fights for him or promotes him for a set period of time with certain amount of fights that need to happen in that period of time. In very special cases like this one, Canelo will also have a contract with DAZN guaranteeing him a certain amount of money for a certain amount of fights, maybe with some upside as well. Um, I don't know if the length of Canelo's contract with Golden Boy matches up with the length of his contract with DAZN. That's an interesting question. Um, 
I don't know how easy it is to break those contracts. That's usually a very complicated question. It's probably easier for DAZN to break the contract. And I'm sure there are several things that Canelo could do to breach it. So maybe Canelo could breach it and hope he gets out of it, kind of like pulling in Antonio Brown. DAZN would only want to break the contract if Canelo was really no longer a draw to their service. And I think like right now, unquestionably, he is the top subscriber driver for DAZN, so they wouldn't want to do that. It's probably not that easy for Canelo to break, um, but it could literally range from not possible to something where maybe there's a crazy buyout. That's a tough that's a tough question, probably meant more for a lawyer than for me. But back to the first question, like I think we saw a lot of bizarre behavior from Golden Boy to the point where it wouldn't shock me if no one at the company could make a single move without Oscar's consent or some some kind of arrangement like that, where they'd have to run everything by Oscar before they could say anything publicly or make any kind of move. And I think that would really explain some of the lack of communication and the lack of engagement uh, with with all entities. I think especially if Oscar really wasn't being that communicative with Canelo, like, I don't know what could have caused that, but there's obviously a few possibilities ranging from Oscar's personal issues to Canelo wanting to take more control of his career. You know, I think all that will happen and what really makes sense is just the Golden Boy side will end up giving Canelo more money and hopefully they'll communicate better and have a better relationship on all sides. You know, here's what's at stake in these talks. You know, from DAZN's side, it's literally the future of the company. And it's like, is the company in America even going to last for the entirety of the 10-fight deal they signed with Canelo? Like, that's what's at stake here. You know, Canelo is the person who is most likely to ensure that the company is successful or at least puts them in a position to move into other sports. From Golden Boy's side... They're obviously so heavily reliant on Canelo that it's kind of insane. Like, I understand Canelo's frustration with them from a business standpoint because almost all of his recent opponents are not Golden Boy fighters. You know, you think any other promotional company in the world just would have gone out there and signed a ton of middleweights on the promise that they'd be in with Canelo? And that just hasn't happened. Like, David Lemieux is basically who their big signing was, and that's about it, and he can't even make middleweight. Like, the only thing that saved Golden Boy is DAZN and the big dollars they're getting from DAZN. So from that perspective, the only major thing that Golden Boy has done for Canelo is given Canelo Oscar's guidance from having gone through it before. And then how well Golden Boy understands the Hispanic market in the United States, which they understand that very well. Like, And those are legit reasons to sign with Golden Boy and to stay signed with them for the time being. You know, because like I said, I think Golden Boy really does understand the Hispanic market, especially the core Hispanic boxing market, uh, probably better than anybody. But that's not really Canelo's business anymore. So I understand why he's frustrated with them, especially if he and Oscar aren't talking, because it's really those two things. When you take away those two things, it's like, well, what else do you do for me? Like, if you don't give me opponents and if you don't truly understand the market of fans that I'm going to right now and you're not here for guidance, like, why am I with you? Um, so I'd be frustrated too, you know, and I've just kind of laid that out from Canelo's side, but really what's at stake for him is his legacy in the sport and then maximizing his financial situation. And 
I've been one of the people saying I think he's underpaid. I think Golden Boy is definitely receiving a lot of benefit from their relationship with him in terms of how they're getting compensated from DAZN. You know, we've even seen some evidence that during these UFC hearings, um, they have come out recently during this whole court case that's happening right now. When you look at fighter pay, it was revealed that Golden Boy has put much less of their overall revenue to fighter pay than other boxing promoters. Although I haven't done truly enough research on that to tell you if that includes Canelo or not in it and, and how that really affects things with Golden Boy and how, how well they pay him based on the revenue they get. But, like, look, can Golden Boy help him get the dollars where, where you know that, that he should be getting and help him achieve the legacy that he wants? I mean, there are legit arguments that are not doing a great job of that right now. Um, I haven't talked about Golden Boy a ton on this podcast, mostly because I don't find promoters with one major fighter who haven't developed a ton of A-level talent. And I think Gold, Golden Boy has developed a lot of B and B-plus level talent, and hopefully Virgil Ortiz can be another A-level talent. But I just don't I don't find those kind of places that interesting. Like, you know, uh, you know basically in terms of content providers, top-ranking PBC... Um, and Matchroom, to an extent now, are, are developing talent much better and are just much more interesting. That's why I talk about it. But maybe I do talk about Golden Boy in an upcoming episode, especially if this continues. These, I think, are the, the you know, and I don't want to sound too negative on Golden Boy here, but I do think, especially if you just isolate this incident, there is plenty of blame to go around with, with what they're doing. And I think even, I think, if you gave them true serum, they would probably tell you they, they'd wish they had kept a better relationship with Canelo and done a better job at some of this stuff. But, um, you know, I don't want to speak for them, and I, and I think that uh, maybe that is something to dive into a little bit more in the future. All right. Black Tower Radio asks, If Top Rank on ESPN continues on its same ratings pace, do you see uh, them getting a, as lucrative of a deal, uh, in 2025 as they have now. So black tower radio, I think there are so many other factors involved in how this deal would look. And I think on one level, like simply maintaining the current ratings pace that they're on right now would mean that by 2025, almost all the other programming will likely have seen some type of atrophy to the point where like just holding on to what you have now means you'll likely get a much more lucrative deal. Uh, so that's that's one thing which I think like th- you can say that virtually of almost any show. Uh, I'm also I also think there just won't be four major networks doing boxing by 2025, which I think is when you get into the other facets of of, of how this would work. I think that's a really major factor because you know in the interim, Top Rank has an excellent chance to sign fighters from other platforms who've lost opportunities. You know, in terms of pure stability, the ESPN deal is probably the best deal out there for a promoter. And so as this dynamic marketplace changes, look for top rank to have the best opportunities to improve their roster and develop young fighters. And if they end up failing to do that, like just because of greed or toxicity or whatever it is, you know, that's going to end up being one of the bigger missed opportunities out there. Um, PBC is obviously set up very well, too, and, and Eddie Hearn um, although he's de- heavily dependent on DAZN keeping that money going, is set up pretty well. So I think like 
I would look in terms of a general trend, these three content providers slash promoters would are probably gonna just gonna make continual gains on the other promoters and they'll have the best chance to succeed by 2025. But this question rests so much on the unknown elements of the marketplace that I think will just end up mattering a lot more than just top rank's ability to get ratings on linear ESPN by 2025. Um, Here's what I'd say, if, if I'm analyzing it all from a high-level vantage point, Top Rank is getting a lot of money to be on the best platform for this right now. PBC easily has the most high-level fighters, but they have one platform that's on shaky footing long-term, and so they could lose that money, maybe only short-term, maybe long-term, we'll see. Uh, they have a shorter deal, obviously. So if they do really well, the Fox deal, they could renegotiate and get more money than Top Rank's getting from ESPN. You know, Hearn's kind of a wild card because he has a lot of money right now. Uh, and I think he probably has the most modern and sophisticated approach to promoting. But his platform is not fully stable at all in terms of their commitment to boxing long term. And I think like his bread and butter still is the UK. Like he's relatively new to America. And so if you want to be in anyone's position, it's probably top ranks, but like, it's really a tough call between all of them. And what I would be doing if I were them would be building a war chest to aggressively pounce on fighters once the stability in other places, you know, potentially goes away. So you would have a chance to get better ratings um, in 20, you know, by 2025 and rating, I'm just going to say, we're talking both linear ESPN, but we're also talking ESPN Plus because that's clearly where the focus is right now. I think, you know, if ESPN decided, hey, we should only be focused on boxing on linear ESPN, I think Top Rank could do a lot better than they've done in 2019. Uh, I, you know, clearly that's a bigger corporate directive. So, so I know weird answer to your question, but I think what it will probably mean is um, if some of those things break their way, they will get a more lucrative deal come the end uh, of this current deal. Chuck Yarla asks, what kind of raw materials are needed to make a fighter a star? How do marketers decide which prospects uh, make pay-per-view stars in the future? You were involved in building Triple G, who doesn't have anything obvious in his favor. Why did you believe in him so much? Which current prospects or champs do you see becoming pay-per-view stars? Um, and Tank, Spence, Crawford... Or is there no heir apparent to Floyd? Great overall question, Chucky. I think there's several layers to this answer, and honestly, I could do... This is one I could probably do a whole deep dive on, but the basic answer is to start out, you listen to the matchmakers and programmers, and you hear their opinion first. So when I was at HBO, that would have been Kerry Davis, for a very brief period, Luis Barragon, and then Peter Nelson. And... They'll tell you who has real talent to get there. And then obviously, you know, there's excellent matchmakers on the promotional side and they have really strong eyes for talent as well. You can kind of either listen to them or listen to them through the grapevine. You know, the thing, the, the difference is this. So you, you sort of deal with before they get to be big stars you deal with one level of it. And so on HBO, that would mean we sort of would do these big promotional pushes behind a certain group of fighters that we know will just end up getting a lot of opportunities on the network. 
and sometimes that worked out and sometimes it doesn't. Like there's a piece we did where we, there was like a big promotional push. It was kind of like right before I got there, like maybe 2008 or 2009, where there were like seven or eight potential stars in an on-air video piece. And virtually every single one of them either flamed out or barely achieved any kind of stardom or if they did, did it on a showtime or, or even more of like a TMZ type thing. And so you can be, you know, your guys can be wrong on that kind of stuff. Um, but as each individual fighter progresses through that level and you're starting to see them in with better competition, like that's when you actually start putting individual promotional campaigns behind them. And those can give you a lot more info. And, and I think like this involves putting out content on fighters, like an HBO case and HBO's case, we would have like linear HBO. So we'd have some shoulder programming there, maybe like a little two days piece, like a little 15 minutes piece. Um, there was HBO's YouTube and social media pages, you know, we would call that owned media in the, in the marketing world. And you could put out little, you know, specific things designed for them and kind of see who, um, catches fire on that kind of thing. There's paid campaigns behind really big fights on HBO where you can, you know, sort of test out how certain digital media causes reaction with the fans. You can look at viewership numbers, for that kind of promotional material. And I think this kind of data is really important because it's like actual data on the fighter and how casual fans interact with the fighter and also how hardcore fans interact with the fighter. But it's not shooting from the hip, which I honestly think like if you're just on boxing social media, especially boxing Twitter, like 99.9% of the people literally just shoot from the hip with no data at all um, and usually no context. And I mean... Honestly, even journalists, a lot of time, like they wouldn't have access to uh, that kind of data from promotional campaigns, but at least they can talk to people at the networks who can say, like, we believe in this guy. We think he's a star because of some of this, you know, we've put out this content. We've gotten great reactions from fans, that kind of stuff. Um, from a marketing standpoint, like all that is important. You also obviously need to have an eye for talent and how and how matchups work because, you know, at any network, or at least the way HBO is set up, like part of you have to have this this ability to sort of see through the bullshit of office politics. Um, and the classic example, like maybe not classic example, but like at HBO, what this meant is like the marketing department had an actual budget for supporting fighters, and like a pretty significant budget at that. But we had to justify our spending to our bosses who weren't boxing fans. And we also had to maintain a good relationship with the people in the sports group, which meant that we had to like have real evidence that supporting the fighters that we got behind would matter. And it's not just how many people watch the fight. It's also how your campaign goes. Um, and you could tell when certain people uh, inside the sports department would just have agendas and they wouldn't necessarily match up with yours, but they needed your money. If I'm just being really blunt about it. So you have to be able to see through that as well and understand how you can support fighters with different levels of support, um, depending on, on what really made a difference. I know that's a weird, cause I can't really give a concrete example on that without exposing certain people that I don't want to expose. Um, so that's a, that's a weird, vague answer to that. And maybe I'll think of a story one day I could tell that would 
really articulate that well, but I can't do it right this second. Um, to answer the second part of your question, I would say if you put heavyweight in a different category, which you probably should, because um, I think there there's enough big-time fights to be made that can keep successful pay-per-views going for a while. Like Outside of that, I think right now we're there's just a large group of fighters that can make like medium-sized pay-per-views fighting each other or with other significant opponents. But like who is the heir apparent to Floyd? Like Floyd is in a truly different category than everyone. I have thought about doing a deep dive just on Floyd. I've tossed that around before. I probably should do it. There's really no heir apparent to Floyd. Although if Canelo was still fighting on pay-per-view, I think if he were able to have Floyd's longevity in the ring, he might be capable of reaching Floyd's heights with, you know, as long as he continues fighting the right opponents and continues the run, continue the, with, with the runnings on. I mean, he, he has yet to, even when he was on pay-per-view, he wasn't an automatic million plus pay-per-view guy, which Floyd outside of a couple fights, I mean, there's, you know, the Berto fight kind of bombed, but I, th- I think that was coming up. I think that came right after the Pacquiao fight. So it was just such a negative backlash there. Other than that, I mean, Floyd was almost a lot to do 800,000 buys no matter who he fought once he hit a certain point in his career. And I don't think, I think Canelo was like just approaching that. But anyways, you know, no one else comes close. And I think we would need to start, we need to start by seeing a fighter have success at an early age on pay-per-view. I mean, remember like Floyd did this at a pretty young age. He started his pay-per-view career. And so that means like we would need to see a Devin Haney or a Tank Davis or a Virgil Ortiz Jr. Like start to win some big fights in the next year or two, and then right after that, like do you know maybe for, maybe Tank could do it next year. Like start do, like start out by doing three hundred thousand buys on pay per view and and building from there. Um, and then by the time they're as old as Crawford or Spence are, like maybe they are able to c- carry their own pay per view regardless of opponent. I mean clearly. Spence and Crawford are not able to do that at this point. Um, you know, I mean, Spence, when he fought Ocampo, I mean, not that Ocampo would, would, would make a pay-per-view right now, but, like, he, you know, he didn't break a million viewers on Showtime last year. Uh, Crawford, obviously, you know, he's very opponent-dependent on pay-per-view. And I think it's kind of always been that way, but he's been on two pay-per-views, none of which have broken through past boxing hardcore fans. Uh, and we'll see if Spence can do it, you know, in his upcoming fight. I think I think it'll be a challenge to break 300,000 buys for him. I mean, I think he'll probably come close to it, but, you know, we'll see. And, you know, beyond that, it's like Triple G was sort of a special case where all of that stuff happened, but it started late for Triple G, and that part was a shame. I mean, I think, like, his rise was a combination of Peter Nelson believing in him and put a lot, putting a lot of internal effort behind him. And so he got some very solid TV ratings, and I think every time we did a paid campaign behind him, he had there was an incredible response, um, you know, and that and that came from all ethnicities and, and viewership groups, ages, everything. Like, like there wasn't a single, uh, you know, a lot of people he got he got known for doing it Mexican style, but you know, early on, if you looked at at his viewership, uh, both from African American and, and and white viewers. It was all good. He was good across the board. And it wasn't just, you know, even even though he was sold in that Hispanic 
uh, Mexican style way, that was just sort of, you know, ticket sales and in the ring. I mean, everybody was watching him is basically the bottom line. So, you know, he, like, I think when you add in, he would, all that stuff internally and we saw all those reactions and like, did he have tools? We had one tool that you didn't mention. I mean, he was an incredibly exciting offensive stylistic fighter. And, you know, also look at that point, if we're being totally honest, like part of the reason he got a shot was HBO, the cupboard was bare and HBO had lost a lot of their stars to Showtime. And, you know, I could probably do talk a lot more about that with, with anecdotes and at, at another time, but that's, part of the reason why Triple G got a shot in the first place and he took advantage of it. So good on him. He made some great money by getting those Canelo fights. Um, and, and did, you know, I think had he beaten Canelo cleanly in at least one of them, I think he could have had a couple fights where he carried his own pay-per-view, but we, you know, we're clearly not at that point right now. All right. Next level boxing. Next level boxing talk asks, I heard through someone in the know that Disney's, capitalizing on foreign tv rights through espn plus if so it explains why their budget for fights on the app is much larger than regular espn how does that work exactly and what is their end game so next level boxing talk i'm going to give you a shorter answer here because i think this one is actually pretty simple it's still a good question um there is a distinct advantage to pushing for worldwide rights and espn plus and DAZN have the right platforms to do it and the end game for these kind of streaming services is to find content that travels really well around the world, not just in the United States. And that improves the value of your company when you can show that you can scale it to a worldwide level. That's what Netflix did very successfully. That's, you know, basically if you look at Netflix was when I started HBO, I mean, HBO was viewed as winning the battle between HBO and Netflix. Um, you know, I still remember the day that HBO lost out on, uh, House of Cards to Netflix and Netflix was able it's crazy because in within a few years because of Netflix avail, uh, capabilities of scaling it worldwide they were a more value, valuable company than Time Warner and so it wasn't just like Netflix beat HBO it was like they beat all of Time Warner and HBO had to change its model and obviously there were some market corrections and and, you know, HBO just used to sell off, and this is what everybody did, they would sell off the show to foreign companies and they wouldn't scale worldwide with with a streaming service. Like, we lose sight of this as a, as a boxing community. Like, this is something that the sport can do a lot better, and I think you're starting to see DAZN and ESPN Plus try to take advantage of it worldwide. Like, the sport travels well. It's never going to be soccer, it's never going to be basketball, but out of the niche sports around the world, it travels really, really well. And I think it can be really, really valuable as you enter a lot of countries, you know, if you control significant boxing content. Um, it's it's really easy to dismiss that because there's probably not a single country in the world where it would easily be viewed as the number one sport. Um, but there's a lot of countries where it would be a top two or three or four sport. And there's certainly a lot of countries, um, I mean, nothing's quite like the U.S., but even in like England, it, it would be viewed as one of the top niche sports, you know, because obviously like soccer is going to be the biggest sport there, you know, if they're football. Um, and, and then, but it does travel, it travels really, really well. So I think that's why they're doing it. Uh, and they're looking at things just from, from much more of a worldwide scale. Beatles fan. 
asks, do you think Wilder Fury 2 really takes place? Wilder is going to fight at the end of November and then turn around and fight Fury in February, right? Beatles fan. I do think it'll take place, and my understanding is that there is a deal in place with several different possible dates. The only reason why it wouldn't take place is if Ortiz KOs Wilder. Uh, it may not take place in February, but that for me would be one of the more exciting things to watch because I actually think for Fox and ESPN working together, it'd be really cool to watch them work together to promote a fight. It's clearly the biggest payday for both of those guys, and I think the date in February makes a ton of sense for the networks. That's probably why that date got thrown out there. Like, Remember, this would be like right after NBA All-Star Game. There isn't a ton to talk about from a content standpoint. It's before March Madness. It's after NFL playoffs. Uh, it's something that ESPN and Fox could blow out of the water, and I think it could just drive content for them all day long at a time when they really need it. When I say content, like all their shoulder programming on FS1 and ESPN and then ESPN2, like I think this could just be something that everybody, they get their talking points, they talk about it, these guys are interesting. Like Deontay Wilder and Tyson Fury are both really interesting people to interview. I think they could make this work really, really well. I mean, I think it's, if I'm being perfectly honest, I think it's the only realistic pay-per-view on the horizon that isn't Mayweather Pacquiao 2 that could touch a million pay-per-view buys. And I'm not necessarily going to predict it to hit a million, but we've never seen anything where it's like this, where it's like two different promotional entities or content companies in the case of PBC and two different networks working together like this on this scale. At least we've never seen it in boxing. It'll end up being the highest ceiling for that kind of pay-per-view fight. And, you know, basically, it's going to be the highest ceiling for any pay-per-view fight in the modern era that doesn't involve Floyd Mayweather. I mean, that's really, you know, and it could still only end up being six or 700,000, which is, I think, is like, that's still double what the first one did. But it could easily end up being over a million, depending on how both, it, depending on how the networks got behind it. Like, with that kind of runway, you can promote it during NFL playoffs, too. I mean, core fans are sleeping on how easy it would be to promote this to, like, just an incredible level of business. You know, I, I know Aaron will go out there and say $2 million, and I don't think it'll hit $2 million. Like, let's be, let's be real on that. And, and like I said, might not even hit $1 million, but it could easily do really, really, really well and better than people think. Manny Alejandro asks, would boxing promotions stand to benefit from using the sanctioning body's ratings next to the name of fighters on TV? I feel this could help casual viewers identify who they should care about, and general sports fans are accustomed to this in college football, tennis, and UFC. Manny, this is a tough one because sanctioning bodies usually end up having ridiculous rankings because of how self-serving they end up being. They usually don't rank other champions from other sanctioning organizations and they frequently do promoters favors in the in the rankings like that's almost out and out ridiculous um the counterbalance to this is the rankings that are in the ring or espn or places like transnational boxing rankings you know i personally think the ring or espn or if even i'm not even sure if fox does them at this point if fox started doing them i think most of the journalists at those places do a good job and their rankings end up being like fairly accurate. I think there definitely are like, you know, 
I'm not saying that ESPN's top 10 pound-for-pound rankings are... Look, I personally think pound-for-pound rankings are horseshit. And I think, you know, going back to my time at HBO, as long as the two fighters are in the top 10 pound-for-pound of fighting each other, I would almost always advocate saying it's number one versus number two or two top five pound-for-pound guys, like, in terms of just the narrative of selling the fight. Um, You know, pound-for-pound just doesn't mean anything. It's like, well... If the guy, you know, he's either smaller or bigger, but like, how does that even work? I, I find that whole thing to be kind of ridiculous and, and just like a stupid, stupid thing that I would only use to, to sell when I needed it. Um, but you're right. So, so let's take away pound for pound. Let's just do rankings for each weight class. That would definitely help casual viewers. And I wish there was a better system. But if you just purely looked at the WBC or WBA or IBF or WBO rankings, like there's very few weight classes where you'd even get a respectable top 10. Whereas like, you know, on ESPN or the ring or transnational, yeah, they're pretty respectable in terms of their top 10. There might be an agenda here or there. Um, and you could basically say out of all the journalistic outlets, except for the athletic that, you know, there could be an agenda, like ESPN broadcast boxing, so they might have an agenda. The ring is owned by Golden Blue, which is on zone, so maybe they have an agenda. I think the individual journalists don't have an agenda. I'm, I'm just being perfectly honest. Like, most of them don't. Um, maybe sometimes the editors are tough brass to do, but, like, most times the actual journalists don't. I'll emphasize most of the time there because, you know, in boxing, it's, it's boxing, so, <laughs> you know, who knows? Um, but that's why you can't use those rankings. And that's why it's tough to use the ESPN rankings. Cause I think even a casual viewer would be like, Oh, ESPN's broadcasting boxing. You know, it'd be like if, if Fox is televising college football, but they have their own set of rankings. And then there's the coaches poll and there's the USA today play, you know, it gets tough. It gets a little dicey. You'd have to really establish some credibility over time. I do think, like I said, ESPN and, and The Ring have established that credibility over time, even though they're both possibly could be agendas. I don't really think there are. All right. Julio Arroyo asks. Oh, and by the way, going back to that, transnational boxing rankings. There's like literally no agenda there. It's just a bunch of independent people doing it. Um, they just aren't, you know, quite frankly, marketed that well even though it's great people doing it and it's probably the most accurate rankings. But you could use those. That'd be great. That'd be easy. Julio Arroyo asks, Showtime has the best announcing team to me and DAZN and ESPN second. How much does an announcing team matter in terms of the metrics companies look at? Julio, first of all, you asked me a bunch of questions and I should save some of them, but this is the one that intrigued me the most. Um... Because I actually think the answer is really not that much. I don't think announcing teams matter that much in terms of the metrics. I think keyword there is metrics. Companies look at like pure viewership numbers, that kind of stuff. I think the fights really do that part. I think the way companies look at announcers, it's sort of in the integrity of the product that is coming to consumers. Uh, in the potential to win awards for shoulder programming, and then in terms of prestige. Uh, and I also think in this day and age, you can get good publicity and good earned media uh, based on what 
announcing teams you choose, and how you deliver your broadcast. Um, but going back slightly to the integrity of the product, this matters a lot to core fans. And I think core fans uh, will talk, will happily talk about it on social media. We've definitely seen that. Um, but they, th- this matters to core fans just in terms of you cannot get core fans angry at you because you have an incompetent announcing team. And I don't really think anyone has a truly incompetent announcing team in this at this moment right now. I think uh, most there there are at least announcers in, in every broadcast that are pretty good. Um, and then there's group dynamics, which can get weird uh, sometimes. But I do agree with you. I think Showtime probably, and I think just because they've been together so long and have so many reps and, and come from that, old school way of doing it where you're not necessarily pushing one thing probably come at it with with the most that gives it the best viewer experience but i also think uh there are elements of almost every group that where, where they do certain things pretty well that is an issue for another time though canada christ um asks if the zone wants to drive subscriptions why doesn't it fund its own WBSS-style tournaments and lure the big stars in each division with huge winner shares and appearance fees? Got to be better than paying hundreds of millions of uh, dollars for a couple fighters who won't fight each other. Chris, I would argue that basically right now, that is what DAZN is doing with the WBSS because I believe they own part of the WBSS, or at least they've insinuated publicly that they do own part of it. The WBSS is also going to be directly responsible for a large amount of the good TV fights that they'll end up airing in 2018 and 2019. You know, So for that type of thing, you just have to remember, it makes sense to do it in divisions without stars because stars typically won't join those style tournaments no matter what kind of financial rewards you give them. Um, and that's just because of how much is at stake. So you're kind of like, that gets into, you're on a time frame if you're zone to hit a certain number of subs, and it takes a lot of effort to organize this kind of tournament with top fighters and a lot of money. Like you basically need to guarantee the top fighters that they'll be able to come back after a loss and have a significant fight. And you can't necessarily do that if you're doing a tournament. So I think while that all sounds good, you kind of it, it's kind of these types of things are left to the weight classes that don't have those stars yet. That's why it's. That's why they're not doing that. And you know, I, I also think you, there's other factors like you essentially need to control a division to even consider doing it. And even while some place like DAZN controls a good portion of middleweight and a decent portion of heavyweight, you know, it goes back to that point. Any tournament where Canelo lost early would just be too risky for DAZN because of their subscriber base. And you know, even at heavyweight, they control a lot of it, but they'd still need to get Deontay Wilder and Andy Ruiz in the tournament for it even to be legit. And why would those guys do it at this point? So I'd say keep doing it at weight classes like 140 or a cruiser and create your own stars. Just keep doing it that way. All right. Um, from lead right is the standard format of a fight week, public workout, press conference, weigh-in, that kind of thing, fit for for the purpose of the modern age to drive pay-per-view sales or get people to tune into the television broadcast? If not, what can be improved to target non-hardcore fans? So 
The short answer to this is for a really big pay-per-view fight, yes. The standard weekly fight, uh, fight week is probably just exactly what you want for the modern age, but that's because you're giving several different opportunities to gain earned media and publicity for the fight, and people will actually pay attention to you because of how big the fight is. Like, we're in talking Floyd Mayweather, you know, that type of stuff. Uh, for smaller fights, probably not. Uh, there's probably, and I'm not sure exactly what needs to be changed. I have a lot of thoughts on it. Um, probably that's for its own separate thing. It's the the issue is that if you aren't a talking point of mainstream sports media outlets, you are niche, and the equation to doing it from a niche standpoint is inherently part of the final question I got which I'm going to do my own deep dive on this. And this, I got, I got, John B. asks, how do you build boxing? And I got a bunch of questions also on the DAZN November 9th fight between the YouTube stars. The second part of Lead Wright's question, how do you build boxing? You know, how most people are currently looking at the November 9th fight uh, Logan Paul, you know, these beg much deeper questions of how boxing is organized, how you sell something that's really big in terms of the cultural zeitgeist, how you sell something that's really big in boxing, but not part of the cultural zeitgeist, how you sell a standard weekly fight, how you sell a YouTube circus fight. I think all that deserves its own deep dive. I think it's really interesting to try to talk about how you build a sport uh, for a variety of reasons, mostly because there's no person in boxing right now who directly benefits in a, in a really strong way from actually putting forth the effort to build boxing. And that's what I'll get into. I started answering this question, and then I realized, okay, no, this has got to be its own thing. All right. On to the preview section. Obviously, part of the reason I was doing this episode is Q&A is there's no fight to preview over Mexican Independence Day weekend, which is a huge shame, as I've already mentioned. And, you know, like, honestly, in some ways, it's really too bad for Spence Porter that they couldn't get to do their pay-per-view fight this weekend. I'll preview that one next episode in some way, shape, or form. But let's get to the stuff that's happening now. We've got on Friday, September 13th, in New York City on DAZN, Devin Haney fighting Zaur, Zaur Abdulayev for a vacant WBC interim lightweight title, which is really just the WBC number one contender and mandatory for Vasil Lomachenko. Uh, also on the card, Heather Hardy versus Amanda Serrano for a featherweight title. And then Michael Hunter versus Sergey Kuzmin in a pretty interesting heavyweight fight. Daniel Roman versus MJ Akhmadaliev was supposed to be on here. And that is a fantastic fight. And whenever it ends up happening, I'm really excited to watch that. Haney is like a 20 to 1 favorite, maybe a little bit higher. Hunter is about a 4 to 1 favorite. Could not find odds out on Hardy versus Serrano. This is a pretty good card. And. It would have been one of the better low-key cards of the year if the Danny Roman-MJ fight was happening. And I'm excited to see what Devin Haney's going to do on his own in a big step-up fight. 
All right, let's move on to Saturday the 14th. We've got a few different cards, all of which are streaming. Let's start with ESPN Plus from Las Vegas, where Tyson Fury is fighting Otto Valin. Emmanuel Navarrete is fighting Juan Miguel Elorde for his WBO junior featherweight title. Jose Pedraza is fighting Jose Zapata in a really good junior welterweight fight. And then Carlos Cuadras is fighting Jose Maria Cardenas. A couple of others on the card, like Gabe Flores Jr. on the card. So this is I kind of, you know a lot of names on this. Not a lot of great fights. I mean, Fury is like a 25 or 30-ish to one favorite right here. Navarrete about the same. I obviously find those guys really interesting to watch. But, you know, we need to see them both in some more competitive fights soon. Uh, I will give Navarrete a pass right now. I will not give Fury a pass on this one. I th- you know, I wish I wish they would have picked a more competitive fight for this one uh, for Fury. So then Pedraza is actually a good fight. Pedraza is a payday. I mean, Pedraza is like a minus one sixty favorite. Like he's under two to one. That's about as close to a coin flip as we'll see in boxing. But overall, fairly curious card coming from ESPN Plus. You know, I've, I've talked about it a lot recently. It's not really what we'd expect to see as like a centerpiece fight card on a weekend like this. Um, and I think had the zone, if had the zone been able to consolidate their cards and combine them. They would actually probably have the better fight card. Um, so on that note, let's talk about their fight on Saturday, September 14th to go to Carson, California, and talk about why they are not able to say that. Because there, Jaime Munguia is fighting Patrick Alatoy for Munguia's WBO Junior middleweight title. Ryan Garcia versus Avery Sparrow also on the card. I have not seen odds yet out on this fight, which says a lot. I would say Munguia is expected to win, and I seriously hope he moves up in weight after this. Ryan Garcia is in a very real fight. We should learn a lot from him uh, in this fight. Sparrow's a slick fighter, and I think we will we will definitely come out knowing a lot more about Ryan Garcia. He's had a few of these fights recently, but this one I think is pretty important. Uh, this is the first style like this that he's going to be presented where he needs to look good against and if we're going to expect him to succeed at the next level, he needs to be able to definitively beat fighters like this. All these fights are streaming, and there's the UFC fight, which I think has the best fight of the weekend, with, you know, with Justin Gaethje versus Cowboy Cerrone, not even happening in the United States. I think had we have, had we, if we were able to look at viewership ratings for all these streaming cards... I think the UFC card will get by far the most viewers. Maybe the boxing all combined will beat it, or maybe two of, two of the three of these combined will beat it. But if you would have said that only one year on Mexican Independence Day after Canelo and Triple G fought, that one year later it would all be streaming fights and the best fight on this weekend would be a UFC fight, no one would have believed you. They all would have said you're crazy. Let's move on to the following weekend. Pretty quiet weekend. On Friday, September 20th from Midland, there's a showbox card with Michael Dutchover and a few other fighters. I think Ruben V is one of them, too. Maybe I should cover these more. Um, I just don't... I think showbox is like one level too low most of the time uh, to cover. On Saturday, September 21st from Bakersfield, California, uh, FS1. PBC on FS1. We have Peter Quillen versus Alfredo Angulo at super middleweight. Also on the card, Chris Colbert versus Miguel Beltran Jr., Thomas DeLorme versus Terrell Williams, 
no odds out on this card yet. And the big thing for me is that, you know, we've got these two guys in the main event with decent names for fighting on FS1. Uh, and I'm kind of excited to see what happens here because FS1 is almost sure to have a lead-in, whether it's college football or playoff chase for baseball. This card will have a lead-in, and I think we haven't seen, you know, we've only seen two really interesting ratings from FS1. One was was that first fight of the year with Caleb Plant, and one is the fight that just happened with, with Brandon Figueroa. Uh, where we've seen some good results. And so now I'm excited to see what happens with a lead-in like this. We've seen a lot of baseball lead-ins, but this is, you know, this is actually would be during the playoff chase if it's baseball. I'd be really curious to see what they get with a college football uh, lead-in on FS1. That's about it. Uh, I will talk to you guys in two weeks. Thank you for all the questions. And I don't know if my next deep dive will be specifically how do you grow boxing because I do want to incorporate that November 9th uh, fight into it and there's a lot of cool stuff coming up you know November 2nd I am definitely not one of those I do not sleep on the impact that the Nate Diaz Jorge Masvidal fight on the UFC will make on the DAZN Canelo fight November 2nd I I am really curious to see whether they keep that date for Canelo I'm really curious there's a lot of great fights coming up in the fall, a lot of fun stuff to talk about. I'll definitely preview uh, what, what, what the pay-per-view fight is looking at for uh, Spence Porter. All right, talk to you guys in two weeks. Did you get what you was looking for?